The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Francis Wong. My wife, Len, and I have been attending Story City for the last two years. Uh, I serve at the hospitality team uh, twice a month. And uh, please rise as we read the word, reading the Word of God. Uh, today's scripture is, uh, is from Luke 20, verses 34 to 36. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Following is the Chinese version, and I'll be reading it in Cantonese language. This is the word of God. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brother Francis. I appreciate you, sir. It is, uh, if you've been around here any length of time, you have heard many different languages. There is something very unique and special and cool about that. So, Francis, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Okay, this half the room's great. <laughs> this half didn't try the coffee this morning. That's all right. You guys can do this. Welcome to the Burbank, Burbank location of Story City Church. We're so glad to have you this morning. I say Burbank location because we are looking forward to in this next year launching the Granada Hills location or relaunching Granada Hills location, and we're excited about that. You'll be hearing more about that in the months to come. My name is Jared, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to serve as your pastor. We want you to know that your story is welcome here. Whether you've been hurt by the church and you're just kind of finding your way back and you're still tentative about this whole thing, we get it, we understand, you're welcome here. Whether you've been apprenticing Jesus for 50 or 60 years, that's awesome, you're welcome here, your story's welcome here, or whether you're somewhere in between or you don't even know where you are, that's okay too, right? Um, we had a church, I had a friend who had a church in a bar, and um, Saturday night, the owners of the bar would just leave all the drunk people there, and they would let them, pa- they were passed out, they would wake up in church. Now that is a rude awakening. <laughs> so if you woke up here, and you don't know where you are, that's okay. We're glad that you're here anyway. Your story is welcome here. We, um, we really believe that, that your story is a part of God's story for the Valley and for greater Los Angeles as a whole. And so we are excited about what God is doing in that part. We want you to know that, that we are a family that is attempting to become uh, healthy followers of Jesus and healthy in healthy relationships with each other. Those are not things that come naturally. It takes time and energy and effort, but we, we are trying to do this not so that we can have a good name or a better name, but so that Jesus' name is lifted up and we can see our communities healthy and whole. That is important. 
to us. And so if you're here, that's what we are all about. We don't want to be the center of the story because we are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, not Story City Church. Now, the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. And uh, that's because the sins we chose and the sins we are born into means that we were spiritually dead without any hope of waking ourselves. And that uh, Jesus took that punishment and suffering for our sins, becoming the sacrifice that fulfilled that law's requirements. And in doing so, Jesus ushered in a new kingdom that we get to be a part of. And those who uh, apprentice Jesus uh, as, and, and acknowledge him as Lord and King over every aspect of their lives, uh, that they become citizens of this new kingdom. But God doesn't just stop there. He invites us into his family. We become adopted sons and daughters. That's what makes us family. Through his Holy Spirit, it continues to restore our brokenness. If you haven't figured it out, this church is filled with broken people. We are a bunch of hypocrites. Let's at least own it, Right? Everybody is. Whether you own it or not, that's the deal. So let's just own our junk. That's a part of it. We are a broken family, but because we are adopted into God's family, we are still family. When God brings a group of family members together for a unique purpose, then we call that the church. So welcome to church. What is that mission? To model who God is as family, as servant, as missionary, to show and teach others about Jesus and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right. Good? Okay. All right. Somebody's awake this morning. Thank you, Story. I appreciate that. All right. Over the last couple weeks, I have been getting a ton of questions about one topic in particular. And, uh, and it's, you know, sometimes you get a topic and it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of the topic of the day. And it kind of comes out and you're like, oh, great. And then it just kind of goes away. This is actually building. And so I kept getting more and more questions. And then I actually had a community group get together and, uh, and present me with a bunch of questions, which I love. So thank you guys for doing that. The question is, what is singleness? What does it mean to be single? And so we are going to address that issue today. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, <laughs> one thing that might help you guys to know this, uh, just, just in general, not even about this message, but it might help you to know the way that we write sermons here in this church and that we have a sermon writing team. Minimally, Pastor Andy and I are together, uh, but uh, many others come into that. And so we sit down and what we do is we, we exegete, means we, we look at what is the scripture telling us. We wrestle with that. And we say, Lord, what is it that you think you're trying to tell the church through these scriptures today? And so we, we write the points together as a team. Then that usually happens on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I take the sermon home and, uh, or in my office, wherever I am, and I will then uh, write the meat of the sermon based on where we felt like God was saying this is the direction that we're supposed to go. So a lot of time and energy and effort goes into that. Once I finish, I actually script out my sermon. Uh, it's not for everybody, but because I can go down rabbit trails, it's very helpful for me to have it scripted out. And then I take that scripted sermon and I send it to our elders. Our elders then get a chance to review it, to look over it, to make comments about it. If they have any issues or problems come up, we get to wrestle with that stuff together also to figure out if it's clear. I send it to several people outside of our church, including some pastor friends of mine, and I send it to some non-Christians. I send it to some non-Christians because I want to know if there's anything I've said that doesn't make sense or that is too Christianese, right? We have our own language we forget about sometimes. And so it's helpful. They know that I'm not trying to convert them. I have a good relationship with them. And so their deal is, hey, just tell us. We'll read it over and figure out if there's anything that we just think needs to be explained better. And so by the time it gets to you, it's, it's been through a lot of different people and it's shared in this experience 
because it's an important part of how we develop this and, and really hear from other people what God is saying, not just my own mind. So that's a really important part of this. I'm also excited this week because as a part of that process, we had both singles and marrieds in that sermon prep process. And so I'm excited to bring you what we feel like God said to us this morning. Now, one other caveat, and that is there are some PG topics in this sermon today. So if you have younger children in the room or, uh, or you, it's too late to get your kids out, then here's the deal. If you have any problems, my name is Josh Wright. <laughs> and feel free to call me <laughs> and ask him anything about how to explain this to your kids. So that's, Josh is sitting over there just in case you weren't sure about that joke. So, okay, now some of you are going, singleness, why did I even come to church today? Thank God I don't have to deal with that. Or, Man, this evening is going to affect me. I don't know why I'm going to sit here this morning. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. That means all scripture points us to Jesus. All scripture, if it's profitable for us, doesn't mean it's profitable only if we're married or only if we're single, but that all scripture, including scriptures about being single, are important for those of us who are married. And scriptures about those, uh, for those of us who are married, are actually important for those of us who are single. And so it's really important that all of this helps us to know and love Jesus more and to know and love people more. That's why we want to do this. Now, the other reason this is important, because can we be honest, the church has really sucked at talking about singleness. Is that fair? Thank you. Yes, I got an amen. All right, good. Let's, let's be honest about it. Why does the church suck so bad about talking about singleness? For several reasons. I think one of it is in response to culture. Uh, uh, churches have often felt like when family, family, I'm not speaking in tongues. I just can't get it out this morning. It's all right. My hardcore Southern Baptists are freaked out right now. It's okay. I didn't get coffee, but I feel like it. Um, okay, here's the deal. Uh, so often, churches have tied family values so tightly to the way that we do church that when family values are under attack, we've felt like the church has been under attack. And so in response to the perceived attacks or the perceived loss of where church might go or what might happen to us as believers if all of this social structure that we know and love falls apart, we value that social structure instead of valuing Scripture. And so we end up raising this idea of marriage and family above what the church says it should be. Now, I love uh, authors Christine Colon and Bonnie Field. In their book, Singled Out, they write this. Marriage and sex are blessings given by God. But by overemphasizing them, we place huge pressures on Christian married couples to live up to these unrealistic expectations we encourage individuals to use sex as a means of trying to find fulfillment for other aspects of their lives and leave singles feeling like second-class citizens who will never be fully functioning humans, let alone Christians, if they don't get married. So in this elevation of family values as the pinnacle of Christian living, we're not saying you can't elevate family values. I'm saying when we elevate it as the pinnacle of what Christianity is, purposefully or not, then we are actually misaligning with Scripture. We're not aligning ourselves with what Scripture says, but we are also creating a culture that leaves singles feeling as if they are less than or damaged. Can I get an amen from my singles? Yeah. 
There are singles who are singles by choice and singles who are not single by choice, but you can often feel like there's something wrong with you as a single when this culture is one that you live in. But this feeling isn't just something they are doing on their own. Whenever we as pastors, whenever I as a pastor, I'm guilty of this just like every other pastor. When we use every example from our marriage or from our kids, what are we saying? We're saying that that's the only ultimate example. When we ask singles questions like, well, are you actually putting yourself out there? Are you trying hard enough? I mean, have you really tried farmersonly.com yet? Or like... (laughs) When we design our singles ministries to be like some sort of Christian mingle or meat market, then, then what we've done is we've, we've marginalized and trivialized something that Jesus never intended us to do. I mean, lest we forget, Dan Brown aside, Jesus was single. Jesus was single. The truth is, this is hard to hear, but many of us will be single much more than we will be married in this life. Whether it's divorce, whether it's death, The truth is that many of us go on to live lives and end up being single longer than we're married. But ultimately, every one of us will end up single. Jesus promises us that in eternity we will neither marry nor be married. That was our verse for today. So let's go back to that moment in Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 36. Jesus replied, marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, Those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. That last line is really important. Children of God and children of the resurrection. Okay, so once again, I can't answer every single question in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, but what I am going to try to do is build a theological framework that we can work within today. You guys understand what I'm saying, right? We're not going to get deep in everything, but we are going to try and at least write a framework for us that we can then begin to think through what does it mean to be single? What is biblical singleness? Now, uh, we are going to have a relationship series sometime later in the year, and we'll get a little bit more deeper into some of these things. But for now, I think it's important if we start with talking about or defining what is biblical singleness. What is biblical singleness? From there, we're going to look at the cultural Uh, current cultural and evangelical church narratives versus the scriptural narratives about singleness. So how do we define biblical singleness? I would define biblical singleness as a non-married person who is apprenticing Jesus and is practicing celibacy. Let me say it again. I would define biblical singleness as a non-married person who is both apprenticing Jesus and is practicing celibacy. I agree with Cologne and Field when they write, This is not to say that we believe all single Christians should experience an undeniable call from God or that they should make a lifelong commitment to living a single celibate life. It does not even mean that we believe that single Christians should not date or desire marriage. It simply means that Christians should abstain from sexual relationships for as long as they are single, whether that is for a short period of time or for their entire lives. The Bible requires all of us to be... It just got really quiet in here. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) 
The Bible requires all of us to be celibate for some period of time. Uh, to practice celibacy outside of marriage. Some are celibate short-term, some longer than others, and some for a lifetime. Now, I realize I just lost some of you. That's why it just got so quiet. Um, so let's discuss for a moment why sexuality matters in singleness. Again, I, I won't have time to get as deep as I would like to, but there are some great resources in your notes today. One of them I really like. It's by Sam Albury. Uh, he writes the book entitled, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? And you can find the other recommendations on your note page today. So why does sexuality matter in singleness? Why is celibacy a part of biblical singleness? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we've, we've just gone through the Sermon on the Mount. We know this is radical even for Jesus' day. This is, this is a tough thing. But, but what Jesus is saying here is that he cares about the intent of our heart, even when it comes to sexuality. He says that looking at a woman or man, okay, uh, lustfully violates the law. He's saying that sexual integrity matters and should be honored by everyone else. He's saying that sexual integrity is so precious that it must not be violated even in the privacy of someone's mind. Jesus is saying that sexual integrity is so important that it must not be violated. Somebody else's sexual integrity must not even be violated, even in the privacy of our own minds. Now, Jesus talks about sex several times outside of marriage, but why does he care so much about sexual integrity? To answer that, I think we need to discuss what sex is for. Now, for those of you who are taking notes today, this is the first observation for the day. Like I said, we're going to present a cultural narrative and then a scriptural narrative. So if you're taking notes, here is the cultural narrative. To deny oneself of sex is to deny your own humanity. In fact, there's people who go so far as to say even, even talking about in a negative sense uh, or, or talking about limiting yourself in a negative sense would be toxic. And so we want to be really careful of that. That is the cultural narrative right now. Scriptural narrative says our sexuality is not, only only, is not only one part of our identity, but it's only one part of our calling. Our sexuality is only one part of our identity, but it's also only one part of our calling. Now, another topic that church has done a horrible job with, right? Why? Because there's two things you don't ever want to hear about when you come to church. That's tithing and sex. <laughs> right? So at least we got one today, and we'll be good. But I, I, the, the job that we've done as a church is horrible. It, it becomes an uncomfortable thing, and so we don't want to address it. We don't know how to address it, and so we just kind of leave it out there. And, and the problem is, is that it's, uh, we've, we've actually gone farther than that. We've perpetuated this bad sex culture. I remember talking to a couple one time that they had saved themselves for marriage, but when they actually got to be married and they went to have sex, they actually felt guilty every time, and then they had trouble because they couldn't have sex without feeling guilty. That is a part of the church culture that we have helped create, and it's wrong. The church has traditionally taught that sex has two primary functions. Procreation, we get that, right? And to be the height of romantic connection within marriage for the sake of marriage. And while both of these have elements of truth to them, I think relegating sex to these two things and these two things alone leave us with a shortened or uh, a less than idea a non-full understanding of God's design for marriage, for sex, for intimacy. 
Now, sex is definitely for procreation. We see this is important. We see this established with Adam and Eve. Uh, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, God tells them, be fruitful and multiply. That's what he's saying. That's really important. So we, we need to make sure that, that we understand that is a part of sex as a creation. It actually continues as an important part of the Old Testament fulfillment of the covenant between uh, God and Abraham to make a great nation that all others would be blessed through. If Abraham can't have kids, he can't have a great nation. And so this is a part of that covenant fulfillment. And so there is something there that becomes a part of it. But in Genesis chapter 2, all the way back in the beginning, we actually see a whole other reason for sex. The Bible says the two became one flesh. In his book, Alberry writes, Christians understand this framework for sex to the outworking of a deeply positive message about the meaning of male and female and of our deep connection as human beings. One flesh describes more than simply a bond of adult love that could exist irrespective of the gender or number of people involved. In the Bible, one flesh is actually telling us a story, a story that involves all of us. It sets the God-given boundary for sex and it points to its glory. In other words, one flesh is a reuniting of the two people that were separated when Eve was taken out of Adam's side. Sex inside of a marriage is both a spiritual and a symbolic reunion of two people. There's something spiritually that happens there that isn't just the symbolic part, but is also a spiritual part. And so oneness is a second purpose of sex. So procreation is one, oneness is another. This is why in Matthew 19, Jesus actually quotes Genesis 1 and 2 when answering about marriage and divorce. He says, you guys have to understand this is more than just you're taking it. Divorce had become something much like it is today where it's kind of like, well, if we don't get along, we'll just get divorced. And Jesus addresses that. He says, no, I take this much more seriously. Why? And he points back to sex saying that there is a oneness that has happened as a part of this, the two becoming one flesh. We'll come back to that more in a little bit. Another thing sex is for in the context of marriage is a way of self-giving. It's a way of self-sacrifice. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul tells the husband that the body belongs to the wife and that the, wife, uh, that the husband's body belongs to her. Now, side note, this has been taken out of context and used for horrific things in the name of Jesus, and this is wrong. This is not about ownership. Did you hear me? Church, it's not about ownership. When the Bible says that the body of the wife belongs to the husband, some husbands would like to leave it at that. It goes on. It says the body of the husband belongs to the wife. This is not about ownership, and I can do whatever I want. This is about submission to each other. This is about oneness. This is about respect. And we must look at this in light of what Jesus said about the value of sexual integrity in each person and how Jesus says this is so valid that you can't even violate this in your mind. How much more important is it inside of the marriage? But this giving away, this sacrificing for is also explained in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul talks about it in his letter to Ephesus, chapters 20, uh, verse 22 to 33, as a picture of what Jesus did for the church. It, 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 it says Jesus and his bride, it says we're supposed to love husbands, you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is how Paul makes that serious pause and statement. It says, understand, this is very important. And so sex is good and right and holy within the context of marriage because it helps fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It reflects the triunity of God bringing together male and female separated in the creation of Adam and Eve. And it also points us forward to Jesus through the sacrificial giving of self for spouse. 
So where does that leave singles? Doesn't all this show that biblical singleness is really less than marriage? That is exactly why we've ended up there because if we leave it there, that's the message that we get. So if you're taking notes today, this is the second observation for the day. It goes deeper. The cultural narrative would be that you don't need anyone else to find fulfillment. You don't need anyone else to find fulfillment. The scriptural narrative, however, is that biblical fulfillment is found in healthy community. Biblical fulfillment is found in healthy community. Believe it or not, we are created to be around people, even those of us who are 110% introverts <laughs> are created for community. Why? The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. What does it mean? God himself is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we are also created to be in community. And when we are not, it actually damages us. Did you know that isolation and loneliness has a greater health risk to you, a greater risk of death than obesity, than diabetes combined? Did you know that isolation and loneliness is the number one factor of people who end up committing crimes like mass shootings? That every one of them has reported that they felt isolated from community, that they didn't feel like they belonged. It's devastating to our community, to our society. Isolation is. We are created to be in community. Earlier in the message, we talked about how the procreation part of the message helped fulfill the old covenant. But in Genesis 3.16, Paul points out the promise of the covenant was to Abraham and his offspring. Now, not offsprings, meaning everybody that comes from Abraham, but he's talking about one in particular, the offspring. The offspring points to Jesus. He says the, the promise of the covenant is actually pointing to Jesus. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the true and better Abraham. That means all new creation comes through Christ and if we are in Christ, then we are new creations. We are all reborn as citizens in God's kingdom, in the family of God, with God as our Father. We are now newborn into this new kingdom. So all birth, spiritual now, comes through Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. What does that mean? It means that procreation is no longer the number one means for fulfilling the covenant. It means that there is a new way, and it comes through Christ. It means that marriage is no longer the only example of what it means to be fulfilled and blessed in this new covenant, but that singles are just as blessed as those who are married and have children. In fact, the new creation is the call to raise spiritual children. We have a Christianese word for this. We call this discipleship. Discipleship is the call to make spiritual children, and it's become more important. Now, Paul consistently calls the church as he starts and the pastors and disciples his children in the faith. Jesus, in Matthew 28, requires us to make spiritual children through discipleship. And while marriage can be an example of godliness and can raise up a predecessor of Jesus, what transforms us into mature Christians are not the externals of marriage or singleness, but the work we allow God to do inside of our lives within our hearts. Marriage cannot be the answer to spiritual maturity, although it does help you become spiritually mature. But so does all trials and pain and things we have to endure. Just ask our spouses. The Bible goes even farther. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, he says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. He has to balance the two. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy in both body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. The Bible elevates biblical singleness because even in its celibacy, there is a call to create spiritual children. It elevates singleness because marriage is no longer the only place spiritual children are created. In fact, it's often that married people have their attention divided and have to struggle with things in order to figure out how to do this well. Cologne and Field put it this way. While it may be difficult to see in the midst of an often marriage-obsessed evangelical culture, Scripture does present a positive view of celibacy, for it continually shows us that our focus should be on our mission here on earth as it prepares us for our eternity with Christ rather than the temporal realities of marriage and family. This is certainly not to say that Scripture degrades marriage and family, for it does not. But it places family values in subordination to the church and its mission here on earth. The elevation of singleness, though, can only be if it is a biblical singleness, a celibate singleness. Because sex is designed to be a connectedness or a oneness, we can misuse it to fulfill a need only Jesus can fulfill. This applies both to married and to singles. Marriage and sex are not the pinnacle of spiritual existence, but I believe a true and intimate biblical community is the pinnacle the pinnacle spiritual existence. Intimacy isn't just sex, though there is intimacy as a result of sex. This brings us to our third and final observation for today. Our church narrative would say singleness, whether we mean to or not, singleness is an affliction that needs to be cured. This is the culture that we've created. Singleness is an affliction that needs to be cured. But the scriptural narrative is that singleness is elevated, undivided, and blessed. When we approach singleness from a marriage's pinnacle perspective, the only answer we can point singles to is intimacy and community that is only complete in marriage. Then we're left to fix their problem that we've created, right? Because if they're not married, then what do we do about it? And say that Jesus is the only thing you need. You just need Jesus. Yeah, but I'm, I'm really lonely. You just need Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is our fulfillment, not our boyfriend. <laughs> so let's not be trite with the words that we use. Clonenfield again write, Marriage cannot be the ultimate cure for loneliness, as so many try to suggest it is. Do many singles feel lonely on a Friday night as they sit watching bad reality television? while seemingly the rest of the world is contentedly communing with their families or experiencing blissful romantic dates. Yes. But so do many married men and women who discover often to their surprise that their spouses still do not fulfill all their deepest needs. Only God will ever know the deepest recesses of each of our hearts, so ultimately each of us will remain to one extent, one extent or another lonely in this world as we come to recognize again and again that only in eternity with Christ will we ever feel completely known and completely loved. Marriage may be an image of Christ's love for his church, and that's true, it is, 
but it cannot fulfill our deepest longings completely. It can't. Why? Because humans were never meant to fulfill that place. That's why all of it ends up falling so short. Whether you're married or single, it doesn't equate to that place because Jesus is the answer. I'm not saying Jesus isn't the answer. I'm saying we can't use it as a trite comment. Well, all you need is Jesus. Like we still need to love people in a way that brings them into and includes them into everything we're doing. So that begs the question, what do we do with all this? I think the answer lies in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1, 27 to 30 says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, guys, this is family. We are now, those of us who are apprenticing Jesus are citizens of a new kingdom, citizens of a new family. We are sons and daughters of the living God. So as this new life, live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am I absent, I will hear about you that you're standing firm, what? In one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is the sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that, I, that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul, who is single and considers these churches his spiritual children, calls on us to be unified in Christ Jesus in our mission, in our calling, as we carry out the great commission that Jesus gave us. So how do we live today in light of our future celibate singleness in heaven? We have to start by understanding marriage isn't the end-all, be-all of Christian community. The church relationship is. But we can't just have singles on one side and marrieds on another. We're all parts of the body of Christ, and each of us, young and old, married, not married, poor, wealthy, woke, non-woke, <laughs> all of us together, Make up this beautifully messy gospel community, this beautifully messy family of hypocrites. We must intentionally pursue true, authentic, and intimate, not sexually intimate, I'm not saying go sleep with everybody, but intimate relationships with all different types of people that God has brought into our lives. I believe in doing so, then we can begin to treat our singles as the elevated, undivided, and blessed members of our community that they are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I thank you that you, um, you're so much bigger than the things that we see, the things that we even hold uh, dear to, that are cultural norms. God, you are bigger than all that. And sometimes it's really hard to distinguish between what you want for us and our preferences. And so, Father, as we seek to elevate your scripture, as we seek to any part of our lives that is, that is not in line with your word, any part of us that disagrees with your word, we know, Lord, that it's, it's us that has the problem and not your word. And so would you continue to heal? Would you continue like a broken bone to reset us into the truths of your scripture that we would live according to what you have for us, that we would understand your design is greater than, than our preferences? Jesus, help us to want what you want because it's really hard. Help us to live as you want us to live because, God, it's just not natural for us. Help us to love you more than we love ourselves. We thank you that despite all that, that's exactly what you want for us. That's exactly what you're here to help us do. As we praise you and thank you in the name of Jesus.